Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. The featured guest in this episode is a courageous woman who will share her journey with autism spectrum disorder. In her telling of how she has experienced autism, she offers some personal experiences with sexual assault. Allow this to serve as your content warning and proceed as you see fit. At the end of the conversation, my friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, will chime in with her usual provocative insight. Enjoy. Identity in me has reached Australia, y'all. Congratulations <laughs> to me. Thank you for joining me from the future. How's it going? Oh, the future is uh, kind of murky. <laughs> is it? Say more, I'll try please. to pretend like it's not, though. It's bright okay, and tell sunny. me, why is it murky? Uh, the sun's covered up. <laughs> How many hours ahead are you all? Like 12 hours? It looks like 15 hours. 15 whole hours. Okay, so if somebody's traveling out that way, they lose a whole day for a vacation. Yep. Okay. But then when you you go back, you gain an extra day. True, true. Have you ever been to the United States? No, never. Any plans on visiting anytime soon? I hope so. (laughs) But again, it all comes down to not sure what my my future holds. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to go to Australia, but the money to go out that way is significant. If you look outside right now, are there kangaroos running around in the yeah, backyard? There's, um, yeah, there's millions just outside my window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like ignorant yeah, American. got a few guys out the back just riding them. Yeah, around the yeah. streets. Yeah, some joeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a few what, pets what, what, at the back and some crocodiles around the back too. See, yeah. I didn't ever connect crocodiles with Australia, just the kangaroos. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now, when you hear about the United States, what's the first thing your mind goes to? Feel free to say whatever comes to mind. Guns. Oh, guns. Say more about that, please. Oh, well, I don't know. You hear a lot about gun violence over there. <laughs> It's true, sadly. And uh, yeah, sadly, it really confuses me with school shootings. It's very sad. So there aren't school shootings in Australia? Kids aren't going to school no. with like, bulletproof backpacks? <laughs> no. No. Kids aren't being trained to like stay in the closet and be quiet if there's a gunman walking around their room instead of coming up with common sense gun laws and like getting certain guns out of the population? Uh, yeah, we had a we had very strict gun laws go in in the 90s. I don't remember because we had a mass shooting in Port Douglas mm. and the government really locked it down um, and just basically banned the owning of guns. Um, it is a bit different in the US. Um, you have a much bigger population and a much bigger circulation of unregistered firearms. So... Um, Hold on. All it took was one mass shooting for your laws to change? 
Yes. Wow. <laughs> Y'all hear that? It's not even like actually funny. That's just wild to me. Funny. One, one mass shooting. We have like one a day virtually. Yeah. Okay. All right. But we are not here to have a conversation about mass shootings in the United States <laughs> versus Australia. I am very curious about certain things about Australia, specifically how you all perceive race and ethnicity, but that could be a future conversation. You might be a regular guest. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> I hope you're willing to come back to, to talk about oh. a variety of things. But today we're going in a whole different direction. I'm still having conversations with people about what's under the hood, the things that we don't see in people that impact the way that they experience their day-to-day -day lives. And so uh, before we get into the meat of the episode, how do you identify? I'm a straight woman and I'm Caucasian. <laughs> is heterosexual some... not a term y'all use there? Do y'all say straight or do you ever say heterosexual? Uh, we can use both. It's interchangeable. <laughs> What's under the hood that people might not see that impacts your day-to-day -day life? I don't always showcase it, but yeah, I do have... Uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and uh, and Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder. What I learned coming into this episode is that you weren't diagnosed until you were 28 years old? Correct. How does yeah. that happen? Uh, it is quite common for girls, actually, to not be diagnosed until much later in life. Uh, men, it was most of the studies had always been done usually on boys. So for a long time, they actually didn't even think that girls had autism or, or Asperger's as they used to call it because they, they present, but as they've realized now that they just present their symptoms differently to men, um, girls are, they internalize a lot more. Um, whereas boys tend to externalize their symptoms a lot more. So it's a lot more obvious. Um, and usually boys can be diagnosed as young as two years old. It's especially with autism, it's usually fairly obvious. Um, Asperger's is a little bit more, sometimes you have to wait until they're a little bit older because it's not always sure. But certainly for girls, there's been a lot of change in the last 10 years or so um, because they have done a lot more research into it. I'm wondering if I've been wrong all these years. You've been saying Asperger's. Over here in the United States, we say Asperger's. Asperger's. Huh. I've heard everybody and their mother say Asperger's here. Okay, thank you for that. Always learning. <laughs> well, something. it is a, it is a German word, so I think none of us are probably saying it correctly. <laughs> okay, I have a feeling you are though. So, how did the symptoms show up in your case? I'd always noticed I was different growing up, but I just I didn't really know what to make of it. I just always it was something that for a long time always really caused me a lot of stress um, because I realized I just didn't understand why I didn't fit in, um, why I wasn't accepted into groups, why I always said the wrong thing, and it really for a young girl it just completely disheartened me, um, and. I think there were certain things. The thing is a lot of people overlooked my symptoms because I was quite intelligent. I was very, I was academically very smart. Um, and so on paper, I looked, I basically looked like I was doing very well, which, you know, for most teachers and even parents, like that's probably all that matters to them. But socially it was a, it was a minefield. It was awful. Mm. Um, and 
for me, I, I remember looking around at other kids and thinking, why don't I fit in? You know, I have, you know, I look, I look like that, you know, I've got overgrown teeth like that girl over there, but she's really popular and that girl's really popular and she's got the same skin as me and that girl, and I could never figure it out. I never, am I wearing the wrong clothes? Am I not funny enough? Maybe I need to be more funny. And it drove me insane. And I guess it wasn't until my sister got into a relationship with a, with a guy who also has Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder. Um, and she was reading a book about it and a passage in the book talked about, um, the female experience. And my mom immediately went, Oh my gosh, Tash, this sounds exactly like you. And, and I thought, Oh no, you know, I don't, I don't have autism. And then she read it out to me. And then I read the book and I had that light bulb moment of going, Wow. Oh my gosh. That sounds exactly like me. So things like I would have very repetitive behaviors as a child. I saw a lot of patterns in things. So I would set out puzzles, but I would keep going. Like instead of doing this like puzzle that would only last like a small section for children, which is typically what they can focus on, I would go for 10 meters um, or something like 20 feet. Um, I just kept kept going and it would but it would be this hyper focus that I would get into I would be I could play for 10 hours a day and go completely uninterrupted um which my mum always thought was very strange um because usually she'd always have to pander to the other kids so I was actually fairly well behaved as a child and but I would but it meant I was left alone a lot and so and my mum also had postnatal depression So I didn't get a lot of social exposure, not as well as other kids did. So I was probably a bit behind once I went to school. But I think there was also other things such as mirroring was a big thing. I would literally copy things of other people. I could watch someone do something and literally be able to recreate exactly what they've done by just copying I could watch some, how someone would drive a car mm-hmm. and I would be able to just replicate that exactly. So I would basically know how to drive a car or when I was learning how to do certain skills, when I went into to making coffee at um, a cafe, I would be able to watch what someone did and then replicate exactly what they just did. And for me, I was like, isn't that obvious? Like, doesn't, can't everyone do that? Um, I mean, I did have quite a bit of a photographic memory as well. Um, uh, another thing is, I think they call it uh, fluid intelligence. I guess often children who have Asperger's or autism can se- sort of seemingly have this sort of self-taught reading and, and almost savant skills. So I guess you might be able to see in someone who's playing the piano or learning the guitar who they might not be classically trained, but they can learn by ear. So some of the, uh, you could almost argue, like some of the greatest musicians who could just play things. Um, yeah, that's or, what I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah. So it's fairly common and it's but all not all common, more common than we think um, yeah. is what I would say. Crystallized intelligence is usually where we use um, acquired knowledge and skills. So things that we've already learned how to do. And basically, you, you basically go forward and use your skills that you've already learned. Whereas fluid intelligence is being able to see 
order out of chaos. And sometimes it's 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 almost like a mathematical mind, like solving complex problems. And yeah. so I guess if we were to do an IQ test, it would be you'd scale a lot higher, if that makes any sense. Got it. Okay. Wow. So yeah. This is really yeah. interesting. So, you would you would find someone with Asperger's would have would do academically very well, but when it comes to social things, it's it's a different story. <laughs> so now, ironically, recently I recorded a conversation with a couple of people about how they experienced recess as introverts, and we weren't even talking about neuro- neurodivergence in that case. And so now I'm curious to know how you experienced periods of free play when you were in school? It took me a while. I changed schools three times in one year. And apparently I was told that I was very, I was very dominating or I guess controlling. Yeah. Um, so I like to be the director, but then I think sometimes I got, um, I got I lost my nerve a bit after I changed schools and so I just tended to go along with what other people wanted uh, because I just wanted to fit in. Like I did get experience quite a bit of bullying. One of the key bullies was actually my cousin. Uh, I, if I was to diagnose her, I would say she probably had some sociopathic tendencies. Oh, is this a cousin you're still connected to? Do y'all have a relationship today? No, I don't talk to her. I saw her at my nan's funeral last year, but like I just didn't talk to her. So you had some challenges socially around having autism spectrum disorder growing up. However, you don't refer to it as a disability. In a way, the thing is, and this is kind of, I, I know I've mentioned it before, that the history of Asperger's and the reason why we don't call it that anymore is because the Austrian, it was after the Austrian man, I can't remember what his first name was, but his last name was Asperger's or Asperger. He was revolutionary in being at, in doing his research into autism and to specifically Asperger's, um, but he also was part of the Nazi machine and he was instrumental in basically being able to identify. So even though often when we talk about the Holocaust, we, it always focuses on the the Jews, but what we forget is that there are a lot of um, yeah. homosexuals and people with disabilities and also gypsies and Polish people, but people with disabilities were often left there as well. But um, pe- people who identified with having Asperger's were considered they, they, were, could, they could work, so they were allowed to be released and work basically as slave labour. Nowadays, we don't like the association with that word um, for obvious reasons. But in a way, it is one of those things that's like often Asperger's is overlooked because we look normal. And for the most part, we sound normal. And we can function as human beings, as like like as a normal human beings, I guess you could say. Uh, but there are times where, say, for instance, a joke will go over my head. And so someone might be joking about me. And I don't realize it's a joke and I might take offense to it. And I another key example of it is that statistically it's much higher for young girls with Asperger's to be prey to sexual predators mm. because they often don't understand, which is something that happened to me multiple times. When you but say they often don't end, understand, what do you mean? Okay, so one example would be my neighbor, Jim, uh, who was an older um military vet um who 
lived alone. We went and visited him. I was from as young as seven. You know, he'd have ice cream and all that, and it would just be he. We just saw him as a granddad. Um, but then it's, there would be some things that he'd do that I felt uncomfortable, and I guess I overlooked my instinct and went, "Oh, but oh, but he's okay. He's an adult. Um, he's a granddad. Oh, oh, he, but he's not." doing anything and so you wouldn't understand that oh that makes me uncomfortable and again much later not being able to I guess even in the dating world being able to understand when someone actually might mean you harm or when someone is joking so I first even as how old was I I think I was 25 and someone said hey do you want to come Netflix and chill and I went yeah sure I had no Mm -hmm. idea what that meant I just thought that's actually like, we're going to chill and yeah. watch Netflix. And then I didn't realize that it actually meant something else. And so I felt really flustered because then I went, oh, my God, I've just said yes to something that I don't fully understand. Um, so certainly, I guess, sexually trying to understand the nuances of it because there's a lot of like not unspoken, nonverbal things obviously going on um, that – you kind of have to get used to. And I certainly experience does help, but when you're a teenager, it's horrible. Sure. I think you you can get yourself into such horrible situations. So and the other thing is from the age of 13, I 12 and 13, I developed very quickly. I had a woman's body at the age of 13. Yeah. I my boobs were a size D. Yeah. I looked like I was 18, 19. Um, and I got told that all the time, and that was probably that was the first time I had men trying to touch me up, and uh, and I and part of me was I always re- referred to it as if any of you have watched Game of Thrones, um, Sansa when she's in the first season, that's exactly what I was like. I was very naive and thought that when men were showing me attention, oh, that you know, they must they must really like me. They must you know. Uh, and I always thought of it in almost like a fairy tale way. And of course, you don't realize it until much later what it actually means when, you know, a guy wants mm. to fill you up and you go, okay, I, you don't really fully understand what sex is. You do, but you don't. The scariest part was when I was at the age of 19, getting myself into a situation where I realized fully I didn't, I got myself into that situation where a man did sexually assault me where I still feel guilt to this day because and I feel such embarrassment it's the reason why I didn't go to the police about it because I saw it as it was my fault and just know it wasn't your fault and I'm sorry you had that experience you had mentioned to me that you took active steps to help you improve at interacting with people socially can you talk a little bit about what you did to help you get along better in social situations yeah, so it kind of brings it back to that copying thing. That uh, So I would often watch, I guess, other people, how they would interact and almost do the exact same thing. Uh, and, it, and it never landed well because whether how, how I deliver it is not correct. But it's also, but it was always a good learning curve. So you might read books and stuff that like just, you know, regular just, novels and stuff that you might be able to go I wonder if but life never actually plays out how you want it to so even if you have a script in your head it doesn't work like that uh and I so I remember buying uh 
I mean, I did study, starts to study a bit of psychology and started to understand certain nuances uh, around people and um, mental illnesses as well, but also just neurotypical people. Um, I always found that super fascinating, but certainly understanding how people work doesn't necessarily help me in everyday social sure. circumstances. So, and I did try, I read this book, I can't remember who it was by, it was just called um, How to Talk to Anybody. And it was more specific to like people who are wanting to go into the business um, career and being able to talk to a lot of people um, and being able to have successful conversations. And so, and I did, I think, I, I don't think I ever finished it, to be honest, because yeah, yeah. um, I think I got, I had other things come up, but I did find that very helpful in a way, being able to understand, you know, subtle nuances with body language and what your facial expression does. Certainly, I used to do acting as well when I was in high school. And one of the biggest things that I had to learn was standing in front of a mirror and just you know, playing around with what your face is doing because you don't realise what your face is doing and I might be trying to repeat exactly what someone else has done either from a movie or someone else from a play that I've seen and I thought that was hilarious and I might try to do it and it doesn't carry across the same way just because my expressions don't, it's not the same and you've can't, yeah. and there's a certain element that you've just got to embrace what you have um, and so Say, for instance, that you might you might watch a Jim Carrey skit and think that that is hilarious and you think, oh, uh, let's try to recreate that. And it just doesn't quite translate as well as when you do it, not only because you've copied it, but also yeah, because... Good. The timing uh, is it's, important. It's something that's unique to him. Yeah. Um, and there's something... Or even um, Billy Connolly, it's something that's unique to him and, it, it, you know, where it's like his style of comedy, it's it's all about, you know how he looks and it, it certainly his Scottish accent makes it even funnier, just doesn't always translate the same way. So, yeah, so I guess seeing how other people interact was always a big thing. Books helped a lot. I just assumed I, because of my bullying, that was my reason for being socially awkward and then realised it. It was, it was a combination of things. I'd been, and that, this is the thing, is that I have never been necessarily formally diagnosed because to actually get a formal diagnosis, you have to pay and go through this long process mm. of seeing a psychiatrist and seeing mm. a, you have to see a psychiatrist that spe specifies in it, which is might take another year for me to see someone because yeah. um, of how popular they are. And it's just, will it actually make a difference in my life? Um, but I've talked about it with my therapist, uh, my previous therapist a lot, and she agrees with me in my what I've noticed, but it is one of those things. It's like until we deal with the trauma, we don't Good. know specifically yes. how much of it is Asperger's and how much of it is just PTSD. And so because you never had a, a formal diagnosis, that means you never had somebody working with you on those social skills that could have helped you in particular situations. And so instead you were reading books, uh, you got involved in theater and did other things to supplement the support that you could have gotten had you been formally yeah. diagnosed. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. And at the moment, I have a nephew who has been diagnosed with, uh, he potentially is on, is on the spectrum. Um, but because of how Australia works, we have this um, NDIS, National um, Disabilities, uh, I can't remember what it is in 
insurance scheme. It's basically if you if you're diagnosed with a disability of some sort, which includes as autism, you can get funding. But you can you can get funding to see a therapist. So in his case, he can see an an OT, an occupational therapist. Yeah. He also is able to see a child psychologist. Um, he's he's linked in with a social or with a social worker as well. Wow. Um, and so he's he's getting support. And of course, they're recognizing he's got incredible mathematics skills at just in kindergarten. He's only five and he knows all his times tables, which is better Amazing. than me. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. He knows all of the dinosaur names and I never, <laughs> which is. And so <laughs> hold on now. Now I'm, I'm thinking about how boys and men in Australia in this case are advantaged over women in this way because it's recognized in them. At an early age, they're able to get the support they need in order to do better in life when they have this particular condition. Yeah, but it is something that, again, was overlooked a lot. They are making changes now, but it is something that I think about 20 years ago. Somebody owes you a check. Yeah. I'm serious. So you... I do. I think about that sometimes. I think, oh man, like I could have, I could have got some money for this. You know, the amount of money I've wasted on. <laughs> therapy. I don't know. You might want to talk to a lawyer. Better call Saul. I'm here with my homie Shahizel, also known as Dr. Lee, um, who joins me to offer her professional insight about the conversation that I had with the guest, the featured guest that is in the episode. And um, I, I have to be honest about something. And I'm not going to even act like I did it to be provocative. So I started the conversation with my guest. Well, not at the very beginning, but when we started talking about Australia, I made a reference to kangaroos and went straight to the stereotype. I shouldn't have done it. Did you catch that in the conversation? I did. And I know you well enough to to give the benefit of the doubt that that's you weren't serious. I thought maybe you were just, you know, poking fun of this person that obviously you have a relationship with and and trying to play out the stereotype to make a point, you know? So that's the way I experienced that conversation. But I cringe a little bit when you start with a kangaroo and like, oh my goodness, there goes Stena. <laughs> um, the guest and I had a conversation about it and she didn't think anything of it actually because it's not this like negative stereotype about Australia, but still... I was doing the thing that I tell people not to do. And it's particularly problematic when we do that in conversation with people who have marginalized identities around the stereotype. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of the conversation? I found the conversation to be affirming of the experiences that um, we see here in the States. Several things that your guest brought up about folks going underdiagnosed. Uh, for a long time. And then your guest also talked about undertreated, you know, and that even with a diagnosis, it doesn't necessarily mean people go and get treatment. Or people may have suspicion of diagnosis, but they don't go and get the official testing and therapy for things because it can be very costly. And we see that here in the States too. I'll give you some statistics. Um, so for anxiety disorders, which is that happens to be in my area, one of my areas of specialty, we have research and data that shows that from diagnosis to treatment, it can sometimes be up to 12 years, 12 years. Whoa. So that means somebody finds out 
at age 10 that they have, say, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it isn't until 2022 before they start to get treatment for it. Why so long? I don't understand. Well, like your guest said, treatment can be costly. Treatment can also be hard. And some people don't have access to treatment. Right? So all of that. So if people may not have access, it costs money. Insurance most of the time can cover, but that's assuming you have insurance. But co-pays only go for so long, right? So there's there could be some economic stressors associated to treatment. Um, some treatment, depending on what level of care you need, so not just individual psychotherapy, maybe you need to go to a treatment program. That can also be very, very expensive. And a lot of times insurance companies might only pay a portion of that. Yeah. And treatment is hard. You know, having to work on, actively work on building skill sets to overcome areas of deficit is a lot. And your guest kind of talked a little bit about that, about her Asperger's and and what she's noticed. Hold on, hold on. You said Asperger's. <laughs> that's how it's I know. Asperger's? <laughs> that's, that's the way I learned to say it. Ah, uh, okay. So I wasn't in left field on this. Okay, no. so <laughs> we say it this way in the United States and perhaps in Australia, they say Asperger's. Okay, and Germany maybe. We'll see. We'll have to check. But please continue. Getting treatment for whether it's a mental health concern, whether it's a learning disability or differences, you have to work at it. You know, it's not one of those things where a colleague of mine used to give the analogy of like, you don't just show up at the gym and get fit. (laughs) Like just walking through those doors does not guarantee outcome or results, right? You have to go in and work the machines. You got to go consistently. You got to go and make it part of your lifestyle for you to see some change in your body going to the gym. Treatment is the same. Just because you have a therapist, just because you show up every week and pay your bill, doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a change if you, all you're doing is showing up. And is that why some people consider therapy to be like some sort of hustle or hack because they don't get instant results because they just showed up? You know, I've had clients who have terminated prematurely, meaning that they drop out of therapy, you know, before the work was done. And in part, they're saying like, this is too, this is taking too long, or I want instant results today. I'll bring it back to our, you know, working with students, for example, if a student is struggling with ADHD or anxiety, and they're struggling in the classroom, well, it's going to take some time to learn some skills, time management skills, study skills, all of that. It takes some time, and they may not see the result in their next test. And then they might say, none of this work. You want me to do this? You want me to do that? And I'm still getting this kind of grade, right? So it's a lot of having to be patient, having to be persistent, having to be consistent. Um, So again, that analogy of going to the gym um, is a good one. So there is no average amount of time it takes for therapy to work for somebody with autism because every case is just drastically different, correct? Right. And, you know, it may be that they go and learn some skills or like social skills or facial recognition, noticing social cues and things like that, that they learn a set of skills and they practice it. And then they might need to have a refresher when they get a little older or they're in a different context and they have to kind of work on those skills again. It is a constant commitment and reminder. And you're, I think your, your guests described it so well that sometimes they have to catch themselves and say, okay. Am I noticing something? Do I need to check it out with somebody else? 
I thought they did a great job explaining kind of what it's like for them, their lived experience. Did her story sound very familiar to you? Like, have you encountered many clients who have autism spectrum disorder who spoke in this way about their experience with it, especially girls in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I see it in boys too. And, you know, you and I happen to work in a population where there's a lot of very high functioning young people. And there are high functioning Asperger folks um, in our community, which means that they're high achieving. They do really, really well. And it takes a long time for them to recognize some of those areas of deficit or struggles because over the years they've compensated. They've worked hard to, you know, maybe people have noticed their good grades and assume that they're fine. What do you mean? They don't read social cues. Like they make friends, but people don't understand the work that it takes. Yeah. Right. For them to really work at it and the moments of misunderstanding and confusion that they have to hold. Like, are, is people being sarcastic? Are they being funny? Are they being serious? There's a lot of trying to figure it out that happens. And a lot of times it's trial and error for folks when they're dealing with it by themselves. Um, what's great about treatment or having a trusted adult or trusted person you can talk to is you can check it out. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Hey, I heard that. I heard what they said in this way. How did you hear it? And you talk about it. All right. I am voting for Shahizel Lee in the next election because I believe in Shahizel. Shahizel is going to get in government and pass policy to make um, education a better experience for all. And in particular, is running on a platform that she is going to look into developing policy to support people with disabilities in school. Furthermore, Shahizel is looking for funding to make sure kids get tested at a young age and they have access to treatment over a period of time. Is this all about money at the end of the day? I don't think it's the money. I think it's what what do we value? Because I've learned over time that there's money. It's just where the decision makers decide to put the money. Okay. So I think there needs to be a paradigm shift around how we see testing, diagnostic testing. If I was running on a platform, I would say we need to value helping young people understand their brain Mm. and understand how their brain functions. What are the areas of strength and what are the areas of deficits? And that everybody deserves to know how their brain functions. And there's an, a battery of assessment called neuropsychological testing, neuropsych testing. You might have heard that before. Um, it's, a, it's a one full day or two half day testing. And it's all about learning about how your brain functions. It, it, it can test for verbal ability, um, for uh, memory, for reaction time, it can test for distractibility. So that one battery of tests can really educate a person, you know, am I more of a verbal person? And am I more of a visual person? How do I learn? What are some, what, how does information get processed in my brain? And by knowing how my brain likes to process information, I can use that for my advantage. And in areas where my brain is not so good at, where are some ways I can build skill sets? to boost those areas, okay? I think everybody will benefit from knowing about how that happens. But in our country right now, neuropsych testing is usually only suggested or referred for kids who have identified to to have problems academically, usually, or um, have ADHD, for example, and you you use that, that set of battery to kind of confirm those diagnoses. 
those assessments are usually $3,500 to $5,000 a pop. Insurance don't usually cover that. It's out of pocket. Mm. Now you tell me who's that got got that kind of money laying around. Got you. Mm. Right. And so you have students who identified who needs this testing. Okay. Now it's about accessibility and economics. And sometimes in schools in which you and I work at, we may have been able to tap into funds to cover it for some kids, but not all kids. But if you were to ask me, everybody should get one. I should get one. You should get one. We should all get one. So we know what how we work. Dr. Lee dropping gems as usual. I'm so grateful for her continued willingness to contribute to this podcast. Shout out to Eric Schultz as well, who engineered the theme song for Identity in Me. If you're feeling the content, be sure to follow Identity in Me on Instagram, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last but certainly not least, special thanks to my guest for sharing her story on this platform. She wants listeners of the podcast, namely women, to know that it was important for her to express these thoughts because she's certain that her story will resonate with too many of them. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity and me. Identity and me.